bringing you up to speed on the latest in conservation, science, and responsible hunting in Canada. Hey everyone, it's Mark Hall, and you're listening to the Round Canada Podcast. Early in February, DFO released uh, a report on uh, salmon on the west coast of Canada and sea lice. The report generated a ton of controversy because basically one of the the primary mechanisms that scientists were saying that the uh, ocean-based fish farms were were wiping out wild salmon stocks was because of the sea lice that are concentrated around the salmon farms. The sea lice were attaching onto migrating um, salmon fry and then killing the salmon fry. If the sea lice gets on an adult fish once they have hard scales, um, they're like more immune to it. The little tiny fish fry um, have skin and not scales, and when the sea lice gets onto them, uh, they basically just eat eat the little uh, salmon alive. So this DFO report came out and and said they have found no statistically significant association between sea lice infestations and, on, and the wild fish stocks associated with the fish farms. And a number of scientists reviewed the report and basically said like, the report was, was terrible, the, the science was terrible, and 16 independent, independent salmon scientists on the west coast of British Columbia um, basically um, slammed the report for... Um, its methodology, inconsistencies in the report and the data, and that the fact that it didn't go any through any type of formal peer review. This got folks very concerned because this was coming right on the heels of an expected decision from the federal fisheries minister, Joyce Murray, about what the federal government was going to do with the licenses for the controversial Atlantic salmon farms that were in the ocean um, off BC's Discovery Islands. And so that was kind of going on in the news quite a bit in early February. Like I said, very controversial. Uh, Back in 2020, there was um, a report published that said the fish farms themselves under their permits had had a mandatory requirement to count sea lice in their operations and then independent auditors went in and would audit these fish farms and compare those to the numbers that the fish farms were um, collecting themselves and this study said that the in the independent audits were showing that the fish farms were counting between 15 and 20 15 and 50 percent lower sea lice infestations than when the auditors were there so it uh it it seemed to to be that um this was saying like that the the fish farms were um not doing a good job um counting their sea lice in and around their operations um, and the auditors were finding these huge discrepancies during the audit so so anyways you know that's just part of the whole story of this sea lice issue off the west coast of BC 
And uh, so anyways, this DFO report was just getting getting ripped apart um, by scientists and stuff for the first part of February. Then in the middle of February, um, Federal uh, Fisheries Minister Joyce Murray made an announcement that the federal government was not going to be renewing 15 licenses for open net Atlantic salmon farms off the coast of BC around the Discovery Islands area. Uh, the minister said that it's a key migration route for wild salmon through the narrow passage um, and that was bringing juvenile salmon into close contact with the farms which ties back to the sea lice issue I was just talking about. However, even in the statement of, of basically that they're going to take the fish farms out of the ocean, um, the minister still sort of signaled that there's uncertainty around the science, whether ocean-based fish, fish farms pose a risk to wild salmon stocks. Anyways, uh, there is a plan. Uh, the Prime Minister has mandated Minister uh, Joyce Murray to come up with a plan, I think by the end of this year, on transitioning 79 more farms out of the Pacific Ocean uh, into land-based operations. By, I think it was um, the mandate was by year 2025, 20, so in two years from now, which some people are saying is, is not realistic. Uh, skipping over to uh, Quebec and sticking kind of on this theme of uh, federal government. Um, the Federal Minister of the Environment, Stephen Gilbeau, made an announcement in, in, in uh, early February that he's going to be making rep recommendations to the governor and council that protection orders are put in place on critically endangered woodland caribou in Quebec. And so this, this is a, a very, very powerful lever, lever of the federal uh, species at risk legislation, where if the federal minister of environment is not satisfied that the province or any province has a plan to protect and recover a federally listed endangered uh, species, then the federal minister can use this provision of Sarah and step in and impose uh, an order. And in this case, what the um, federal minister of environment is proposing is to protect the federal government will write an order to the government of Quebec placing 35,000 square kilometers of forest um, that a critical that is critical caribou habitat for woodland caribou in the area north of the St. St. Lawrence River. There is still an endangered caribou woodland caribou herd uh, called the Gaspé herd uh, which right now this proposed order in 35,000 square kilometers would not protect habitat for the Gas Bay herd. The provincial government in Quebec uh, is, you know, scrambling and, and has been trying to demonstrate to the minister almost over the last year uh, that it's doing a good job and that the federal government doesn't need to impose um, CERA restrictions on uh, woodland caribou habitat. So what they were proposing 
to protect woodland caribou and woodland caribou habitat is to not disturb more than 35% of the woodland caribou habitat. So quite a, a discrepancy between the Quebec government and the federal government. Of course, the, the big ticket item here is uh, forestry forestry, the forest industries uh, in Quebec to lo lose 35,000 square kilometers uh, is going to be a massive hit to the industry. But the federal government is saying um, that the woodland caribou need to come first. And so that's why, and we've seen this in other stories as well, where provincial governments are kind of like drag their feet, they waffle, they kind of like, you know, are really not trying to commit to really strong measures um, to satisfy the federal government that it's uh, looking after um, uh, an endangered species. We're seeing the same thing uh, with endangered caribou in British Columbia. Uh, the federal government has been threatening uh, the same the same way, but they've never actually like pulled the trigger and imposed Sarah on British Columbia. Uh, and then we just continue to see these stories coming out um, from conservation groups pointing out where the province of BC is still uh, logging endangered caribou habitat. So uh, maybe maybe the British Columbia um, case is going to unfold here in 2023. It'll be interesting. What is unfolding in British Columbia uh, along the same line is the spotted owl. So the F federal minister, Stephen Gilbo, recently made an announcement coming on the heels of the Quebec caribou um, order that he's recommending to government uh, be, be um, brought into effect is a rare emergency order to protect the northern spotted owl in British Columbia. So there are only three known spotted owls left in British Columbia. They have about 30 now that they're rearing in captivity. I took my forestry degree at UBC back in the early 80s, late 80s, early 90s. And uh, the whole spotted owl thing on the coast of BC was just starting to kind of like fire up. It was coming on the heels of major impacts to the forest industry in the Pacific Northwest of the U.S. where their federal um, environmental, uh, their endangered species legislation was closing down vast areas uh, like in Oregon and Washington and stuff. And then that was just like completely devastated um, the forest industry in those states. So, so when I was in forestry, this was just kind of starting to come about in BC. The red flags were being raised about spotted owls and old growth habitat. I even went to school with, uh, uh, with a fellow, we played hockey together as well, uh, at UBC. And he was, he was a year or two ahead of me and he was working on his forestry wildlife master's thesis. And he was doing his thesis research on spotted owl, but he was actually looking at spotted owl use of second growth forests and was finding that the spotted owl was actually relied heavily on second growth forest as well as old growth forests. And he was just a student, a master student. 
and he was viciously attacked by the forest industry down on the coast. They did all kinds of things to take a run at him um, as a person to basically try to um, kill this, uh, not him, but kill his research, like to, to, to pull the rug out from underneath of him so that nothing ever got published, that the spotted owls were actually also uh, reliant on second growth forest. He ended up finishing his degree and he basically just said, the hell with this. And he walked away from wildlife management and forestry, went back to school, got an optometrist degree. And he uh, he's one of the, the doctors in my optometrist office actually here in Cranbrook, B.C., Anyways, so the whole story of the spotted owl in BC has been another one of these, these like decade after decade after decade of just failed measures to do something meaningful about a critically endangered species. So here we are, you know, 2023, the federal minister is um, in the process of recommending an emergency order be approved by the federal government, which would give it power to step in and basically prevent logging in a whole bunch of um, known spotted owl habitat. So last year, um, the there was a bunch of logging going on um, on the lower mainland in uh, in the coastal mountains in a couple of drainages called Spuzzum Creek and Utilias Creek. And conservation has found what turns out to be the last known female spotted owl in British Columbia was found living there. Uh, it had um, raised some young that they ended up capturing and moving to this rearing facility. And, uh, and the province of BC, because of the federal government's pressure on um, logging that was going on in these two drainages where the, the last female spotted owl had been um, been identified they they backed off the province backed off on a bunch of logging there trying to appease the federal government and um so finally um the federal minister is still stepping in um moving an emergency order forward uh which would close down logging in those drainages plus an additional 2500 hectares of old growth forest uh that's known spotted owl habitat so one of the provisions of the Federal Species at Risk Act, is even if an endangered species disappears, I mean three spotted owls uh, in the wild, they're functionally extinct in, in BC. There is hope for them because they are raising them in captivity to reintroduce them and rebuild populations. So the Federal Species at Risk Act uses this power to designate and protect habitat for an endangered species, even if the habitat, if the species, if the wildlife is gone, because the habitat has to stay intact, because there is the potential to rear, capture, or reintroduce or translocate species back into the into a habitat, and 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 see that species recover in in that region of Canada. So. One of the things to keep in mind here is a long time ago in Canada, the whooping crane, 
was down to a few remaining nesting pairs in the wild, as was the peregrine falcon. Both of those species today are no longer on the endangered species list because of a, rear, a, a rearing captive, a captive rearing program. They were rearing um, those species in captivity and they repopulated um, wild populations, which um, today are, are uh, flourishing. You know, there's still conservation concerns around the peregrine falcon. The whooping crane is actually, um, from what I understand, doing quite well in Canada. So, so anyways, that's part of the provision here is, um, is protecting habitat with, uh, you know, basically keeping habitat intact. So maybe that these um, birds that they're raising in captivity, the spotted owls, have proper old growth habitat to go back in and prevent them from, from completely disappearing for the rest of forever from British Columbia. So that's kind of what's what's going on here. Interestingly enough, this provision of Canada's Species at Risk Act, um, the emergency orders in the 20 years that Canada has had SARA, the emergency orders being used to protect an endangered species has only ever been used three times. Uh, and this would be the first time that it was used in BC. It was used to protect greater sage grouse in Alberta and uh, western chorus frog in Quebec. So this would be the third time in 20 years, even though there are thousands of, of endangered species in the country, that this um, federal government has stepped into provincial business to protect the species uh, uh, and endangered species. British Columbia does not have a provincial statute, no provincial legislation to protect endangered species in the province. Uh, it's one of the only jurisdictions in Canada that doesn't have its own provincial or territorial legislation for endangered species, which would then, um, the concept is, is the federal legislation is what they call the safety net. So if provincial legislation fails or fails to be implemented, the Federal Species at Risk Act is there to basically safeguard wildlife from going extinct in Canada. British Columbia has over 1,300 species uh, that are at risk of going extinction, more than any other jurisdiction in Canada. And they do not have... BC does not have its own provincial species at risk legislation. It was an election promise of the NDP party back in 2016, and then they did not follow through on it. They banned the grizzly bear hunt, but they didn't bring in the provincial um, species, uh, endangered species legislation. So it's crazy. Some conservation groups and conservationists are talking about this um, emergency order of the federal government for the spotted owl in British Columbia and basically saying like you're 20 years too late better late than never but these are the types of things that we should have been doing um, several decades ago so on the last podcast I did a story uh, about this farmer in Saskatchewan that was was overrun with deer this winter, hundreds of deer, and then the coyotes were coming in and and just kind of like pandemonium on this uh, 
this one one farm and this farmer not happy with this whole situation. And then remember I talked about um, that the Saskatchewan Wildlife Federation was saying one of the problems that they had in using hunting as a tool to reduce the deer population there is that fewer and fewer hunters are are um, wanting to get the doe tags to um, you know harvest white-tailed deer in these these agriculture areas. One of the th reasons that the Saskatchewan Wildlife Federation cited is because hunters were more focused on bucks and and not so much on does. So anyways, I got a little bit more information from this from somebody that actually lives there. And uh, um, a listener, Tim, from Saskatchewan, huge shout out here, Tim, um, wrote in and said, okay, here's a little bit more to this story. And this, I, I really appreciate this. Um, so what Tim said was, on this issue of the lower number of, of tags, um, there's a couple reasons. So 2022 was the first year that legislation came into effect in Saskatchewan requiring hunters to have permission of the landowners to go on um, to hunt the deer. So that apparently put a lot of people off, like a lot of hunters were, were off. Maybe they weren't getting permission uh, or, or whatever, or just the process of having to get permission, which would probably be written permission, was kind of uh, um, just a, one of those sort of bureaucratic things um, that, uh, that hunters just sort of said, screw it. This is really interesting to me because I did not know this about Saskatchewan, that you didn't need permission from a landowner um, to take a deer off, off private land. That's quite interesting. So that changed. So that had an impact on the behavior of hunters. The other issue that was pointed out to me is that chronic wasting disease in Saskatchewan is going up every year. Um, some areas, the incident rate in deer is 50 50%. So that means that if you see a deer standing in a field and you're going to shoot it because you have a doe tag, there's a 50-50 chance that it's going to be CWD positive. Or if there's two deer standing there, one of the two of them is going to be a, a CWD deer. And so that's really weighing on Saskatchewan hunters that I've been told. And some have just quit hunting. And others are, are sort of, you know, on the fence of just saying, ah, it's just time to, to hang it up, uh, hang, hang the, the firearm and the bow up and stuff. So anyways, um, again, thanks, Tim, for, for passing that on. That really, uh, I love getting that local knowledge and insight into some of these stories uh, to make like a, a better product here better content, better information for people that are listening to these stories from across the country. So this is an open invitation to anybody listening. Any of these stories, if this hits home for you and you know a little bit more nuance of what's going on, write me, hcmedia at thehunterconservationist.com and lay it out for me uh, or point me to the information or whatever. And, and I'll do this. I'll come back and, and layer on a bit more nuance to some of these stories. Super cool. Up in the U, so last time uh, I did a story in uh, British Columbia where a First Nations group came out and said, we are declaring under our nation's law this vast area of our, of our traditional territory as a Indigenous Protected Conservation Area, IPCA. 
So I talked about that story and kind of the controversy around it because like the government hadn't kind of consented to it. So there's some tensions there in BC. So up in the Yukon, a similar thing is kind of happening with uh, First Nation um, and their traditional territory in the Yukon is they're working on a proposal and the details um, that they're putting out to government to declare a 41,000 square kilometer of central and eastern Yukon as a IPCA, Indigenous Protected Conservation Area. It roughly equates to 8% of the Yukon. The First Nations group has a community trap line that's been used by community uh, members like for generations. And this community trap line, its official boundaries, um, is is overlaps into the the proposed IPCA uh, quite significantly. So a significant portion of the protected area that the First Nations is proposing uh, encompasses uh, this this uh, community trap line group trap line. Now. I talked a little bit about this on the last episode with the BC proposal um, and just kind of looking at it from the lens of a non-Indigenous hunter and what is the future of these lands for access to hunting and fishing and just general access to the land for non-Indigenous hunters. So... One of the stories I read um, about this Yukon IPCA proposal um, that it was said like it it has to do with protecting the land, but it also goes farther and that the declaration of these 41,000 square kilometers is also about indigenous self-government because they want control of their land. They want to be the land stewards. And one, uh, a spokesperson for the First Nation involved here uh, said in the story I read uh, that they want this put in place because uh, we can govern our own land and our own water and our own animals. I think it is, I think it's really important because there are certain areas that need to be protected and left untouched. So, so wildlife is something that in the IPCA, the nations, First Nations, want control of the management of that because it's important to them as well as the land. Now, what is that going to mean if governments consent to an entire um, self-governance model on something like as large as 8% of the Yukon? What is that going to mean for Yukon residents that are non-Indigenous? What is that going to mean for um, families in the Yukon that operate uh, guide outfitting businesses. Uh, I, I don't I don't want to you know um, project things into the future and assume things are going to go one way or the other, but but I am just kind of keeping I'm trying to stay on the pulse of these stories just with that lens. Uh, I know listeners are interested in hunting. I'm a hunter, and and I'm just interested in what's going to happen to Canada in the future uh, as designations of land change. Another story about Banff, our national park. So kind of 
little bit of a thread back to the federal government's um, concern over endangered species in Quebec and British Columbia. So here in the federal government's own national park, Banff's elk population in the Lower Bow Valley is continuing to decline for the fifth straight year in a row as uh, park biologists are doing their annual inventories. So this is just in a portion. It's the Lower Bow Valley area between um, Banff and uh, Castle Mountain area through the Bow Valley. And so the elk management plan for Banff National Park, they want between 150 and 300 elk. Um, the recent counts are now down to like less than 150. Biologists are saying the primary drivers for the decline, they think, uh, is uh, predation from wolves and cougars. They also have a tremendous amount of human-caused mortality of elk from trains and from the highways. They also had a really bizarre bacterial outbreak of acute clostridial bacterial disease uh, that got into the Banff elk herd about three years ago, and it's still continuing to kill elk. They've, they're, they're finding elk, they're doing necropsies and finding out this um, bacterial disease is, is um, still killing some of the elk on top of wolves and carnivores or cougars. Um, so interesting situation so here's you know elk are not considered endangered species and the way this is looked at is it, it you know populations of animals are looked at uh from their uh, conservation status kind of like as a whole rocky mountain elk are not endangered as a whole as a species in north america then they'll come down like they do with the caribou and they separate out distinct geographic groups of animals that are not interconnected and they can then become extinct which is the situation with caribou in western Canada is is the subpopulations of woodland caribou are decreasing to where they have actually disappeared from areas of their traditional range and so they those subpopulations can be declared as an endangered species so here's the situation in the National Park where Rocky Mountain elk in the Rocky Mountains, Banff National Park, when it was first established, was actually called Rocky Mountain National Park, Rocky Mountain elk. Um, they're, on, they're on the way out. They're on the way out from an overabundance of uh, predators and an overabundance of tourists and the fact that the, one of the main industrial commercial transportation routes for goods uh, north and south is through Banff National Park through the Bow Valley and um, millions of people a year going through the front gates of Banff National Park are going in there to enjoy nature and all it has to offer in the National Park and they're mowing down uh, Banff's elk it's on on the highway so this is a this is a unique situation but there's no mechanism outside of the Parks Act and changes to uh, park policy and and um, the elk management plan under the Parks Act that the federal government's not going to step in with any other you know legislation to um, you know protect Banff's elk herd you know at, at a uh, at a national level so I don't know 
I always see some pretty weird things going on in Banff National Park. This is one where I'm like, what do Canadians want in the national park? Do they want wolves, cougars, grizzly bears, and no elk? Or do they want a balanced, stable population of elk, quote-unquote prey species, and predators? In my opinion, the general prevailing sentiment in the public is they love carnivores. They love wolves. They love cougars. They love grizzly bears. Do absolutely everything to protect those. But fundamentally, how do you protect large carnivores? You better protect their prey. Wolves and cougars and grizzly bears are not going to persist in Banff National Park if the elk disappear, if the bighorn sheep disappear, if the mule deer disappear. They are not going to survive long term on ground squirrels in Banff National Park, which they're moving them to because the ground squirrels are a nuisance because they're in the graveyards, if you remember that story. So, you know, uh, poor wolves might not even have access to the ground squirrels because they're getting translocated as well, so harder to find. Uh, a story out of uh, New Brunswick. So the Canada lynx uh, was almost... Uh, driven to extinction in New Brunswick. Uh, there were bounties on them in the early 1900s. They were intensively trapped almost to extinction in New Brunswick. So their population has rebounded in New Brunswick. Biologists are still saying there's about, there's still less than, they think, a less than a thousand lynx, but significant increase uh, in population numbers. And so they have been removed off of New Brunswick's endangered species list, and they've been shifted over and reclassified to a species of concern. That was a recent decision in New Brunswick. New Brunswick also made another decision about endangered species. So wolves have been functionally extirpated out of New Brunswick for over 100 years. Apparently there are some wolves there. Uh, but one of the stories I read said they're basically like unsustainable population uh, just because their numbers are so, so low. There's been a lot of debate over the last century about which wolf was in New Brunswick. Was it the gray wolf or was it the eastern wolf? And so in this exercise of um, changing the classification of the lynx, they also opened this up and reclassified under New Brunswick Species at Risk Act is the endangered wolf of New Brunswick is the eastern wolf. There is eastern wolves in Ontario and parts of the U.S. Um, they're a bit smaller and some people say they often get confused with a coyote like they they basically look like an oversized coyote that's uh, one of the criticisms about coyote hunting in Ontario uh, is that someone might mistake it for for an eastern wolf so anyways uh, they've changed the designation to the officially endangered wolf which no longer exists in New Brunswick is not the gray wolf it's the eastern wolf so essentially just a paper exercise but maybe maybe it paves the way that if there is recovery or movement or translocation or expansions of populations and it's the eastern wolf, then that's tapping into the recovery of 
a species that has protection under New Brunswick Species at Risk Act. Interesting stuff. All right, you're up to date on what's going on around Canada, and I'll talk to you in the next episode.